All right, guys, we have a very special episode today. Today we are talking with special effects makeup master Bart Mixon. He may be best known for the original Pennywise the Clown in the 1990 miniseries It. That's right, he designed what Tim Curry looked like. All the monstrous forms he took, the wig, the makeup, the clothes. This guy made it happen. But that's not his only credit. He also worked on Robocop, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, Freddy's Revenge, Forbidden World, the Roger Corman classic, and he shared with us some amazing tales from the set. So we can't wait to dive into it. We can't wait to share these with you. When we got Bart in the launch pad, we talked with him for like three hours. So we're breaking it up into two episodes. We're about to dive into the first episode and the next one will be out a week from now. So let's get to it. Bart Mixon on the Launchpad Pod. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. All right, Rumi. We're here at the Launchpad, and we have a special guest today. Rumi, who do we got? Uh, we got our friend Bart Mixon is in the airlock right now. Let's bring him on in. Bart, welcome to the Launchpad. Hi, thanks for having me. Bart Mixon is a guy that I met doing... We were doing a bat makeup for Grimm, for NBC's Grimm, in... I guess it was probably, probably like three or four years ago. The one at uh, the promo at Universal? Yeah, Universal. We were All shooting right. on the Universal backlot. It was kind of cool. We were in the woods. I knew that Bart was a pretty well-credentialed and well-pedigreed special effects artist. But uh, Bart, can you just tell us some of the stuff that you've worked on? Oh, gee. Um, <laughs> Brag a little bit. There you go. Okay, well, going back to, uh, I worked on uh, the original RoboCop, the good one, as I like to say. <laughs> That's um, one of my favorites, all-time favorites. That is that is a good one. No no argument there. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and 4, uh, Hellboy 1 and 2, Ooh. Fantastic Four, the, the Michael Chiklis Fantastic Fours, all three Men in Blacks, uh, all the Ring movies, uh, The Grinch, uh, Planet of the Apes, Gremlins 2. I wish you guys could see Ruby's face right now. He's got a huge <laughs> grin on his face. Fright Night 2. And of course, Stephen King's it. That's, I mean, he's most well known for that. You get accosted at cons and everything else that you go to because you're known for that show specifically, right? Um, I don't know if accosted is the word, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it, it is nice. Uh, I've been on location like in Mexico or Europe and um, like you know, what I've worked on has come up in conversation and, and that's the one that everybody really responds to. So I was having lunch with Rick Baker a couple of years ago when we were doing uh, uh, Ring 3. He had a cameo in it and he was saying nice things about, you know, Pennywise. And I was just saying then that it's nice to have one, you know, I, I don't want... People say it's iconic. I'll, I'll let them. I won't say it is, but I won't say it. Iconic. I, I'll I won't. Say there you go. Thank you. Uh, I'm glad one of you guys did. Yeah, um, but, you know, I mean, obviously people like Rick Baker and Stan Winston have got a career full of, you know, iconic and memorable, you know, characters. So it's it's nice to have one that you can call your own. So Pennywise did for clowns what Jaws did for the beach. I mean, it ruined it for so many people. It was so horrifying. And, and one of the things that I propose is, like, I think a lot of us saw it when we, we were way too young. When that first came out, what was the reaction that you saw when, when that miniseries was first released? I mean, it was 
certainly well received. It was, I think, the biggest thing ABC had up to that point. I think the popularity of it has been kind of a slow growth. I mean, at the time, I was hoping, like Todd McFarlane used to have the movie Maniacs. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, where's my Pennywise, you know, figure with the interchangeable head? <laughs> and uh, for the longest time, and it might have been a rights uh, issue, but there wasn't a lot of it merchandise, which always frustrated the hell out of me. But in the last few years, it certainly picked up, and I'm sure a lot of that has had to do with the new movie. And I think the rights finally landed at Warner Brothers to where somebody can license you know, images of the original one. If you guys know of anything that was generated like in the 90s or early 2000s, it related, I'd like to know about it because <laughs> I, I certainly don't. But it, it is great now. Like I was in Walmart a couple of months ago and there was a Pennywise shirt on the for seven fifty, <laughs> but you know it's so it's great to finally I've got like maybe a dozen Pennywise shirts now, whereas like a couple of years ago I maybe had one. You it know. just didn't exist, yeah. And I, I just don't think that marketing for miniseries was like you know merchandising for miniseries was really a thing. Not yeah uh, yeah I, I guess not. And I mean it was cool just personally you know they did they reissued the paperback with Pennywise you know Tim Curry on the cover. So the first time I went to Barnes and Noble and saw like a big display of all those that was really cool oh that's awesome and to see your work right yeah on the cover of i should Stephen have like King you know gotten a photo in front of it but i i didn't like, sir what are you doing with that display like <laughs> no no it's cool right. no, no, it's i made cool. this <laughs> it's mine it's all right <laughs> do you think that there was a lack of merchandising in part because in the 90s especially that that was 1990 right right was when it was released at least do you think that horror as a genre was not in the forefront as much as it is today. So maybe it wasn't just it merchandise that was missing. Maybe it wasn't just miniseries merchandise that was missing, but it was horror in general, you know? That's probably a fair assessment. I mean, there was, it seems like there was like maybe some Freddy Krueger stuff, maybe not right at 1990, but mm. shortly after. And some of the other characters were, again, like with the movie Maniacs, when you look at the characters that were covered on that, um, there they... You know, there was Freddie and Jason and, and pretty much everybody but it. And again, it might have and it might have been a rights thing. I mean, sure. it, it might have just, you know, for all I know, McFarlane had some, you know, cool prototypes or something that he was just waiting to, you know, to release. Could you just imagine like a, a spider diorama with the big giant spider? Like, <laughs> well, yeah, because you'd have the whatever the five or six figures and then you'd have a deluxe. So that had been the spider <laughs> would have been the deluxe figure. Oh, and then you so could have had a werewolf and a, you know, an Al Marsh and a. You know the corpse, and then again, like Pennywise with interchangeable heads. Uh, oh, that that, that would be the coolest because you have to have the one with the the teeth, and you'd have to have the one with the like the 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 burnt battery acid face. Right. Oh, that and would they would have been when this kid moved. I had a big apartment when this kid moved in. He just brought like a cardboard box that was filled with Ziploc bags of all of the McFarland figures. All of just them. Just dumped them out on the ground, and there was just little knives and little axes everywhere. We're like, all right, this is Jason's axe. No, 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 no. That that, that is that's that's Freddie or uh, that's that's uh, Michael Myers' axe. Wait, whose butcher's knife is this? We're trying to match them all. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. No, my my son was into the McFarland uh, toys for a so while. Cool. And yeah, similar thing. He's got you just have all this miscellaneous stuff that you're like, who does this go to? <laughs> Let's do this. Let's jump back a little bit. Tell us a little bit about you. Where do you come from? Where Where did you grow up? What? Give us a little bit of your past. Okay. Um, I was born in Houston, Texas, uh, 1958. The first movie, uh, that we had a first run, or a second run, rather, movie theater, like a block from my house. And uh, I can remember my mom. I have a twin brother, Brett, who does roto and animation effects. He did the laser beams in the first two Terminator films. He did all the glowing eyes and whatnot in Coppola's Dracula. Um, but anyway, my mom would take us 
to this theater and the original King Kong, Curse of the Werewolf, and I think, um, is it Vampire? Not Vampire Lovers. I can't remember the, the some old Hammer stuff, but like mm. we were like four or something and, you know, we're watching this stuff. So, I mean, like King Kong's my all-time, you know, favorite film. Wow. Greatest movie ever made. So anyway, you know, I that certainly nurtured an interest in horror films in general. About the same age, my grandmother bought Spider-Man number six for my brother and I, which we still own. Whoa. The same exact copy? Oh, yeah. Oh! So that made me a comic book, specifically a Marvel fan. So those two interests intermingled. Through the comic book fandom, we found a, a guy named Ken Donnell that worked at a comic book store in Houston, and he introduced us to this uh, comic book club, the Houston Comic Collectors Association. But Ken used some very rudimentary uh, makeup effects uh, techniques, Planet of the Apes, was out by then. This is like 1970, I guess, when we'd gotten into the, the comic book club. So Ken taught me some very crude techniques on, you know, like doing life casts with life casts with like pottery plaster, you know, yeah. no, no alginate, just the plaster right on your face and, <laughs> you know, and, and how to do like a mold, a two-piece mold or a slip latex mold, you know, that sort of thing. Um, he also, I think he had his own foam latex formula that he just cooked up where he put like sulfur and soap and whipped it up on his huh. stove and he got it to work I never could but um <laughs> but anyway this is all again in Houston Texas and so just just being a fan of monster movies and and comics um I, I knew about famous monsters of course you know so I'd read about like Planet of the Apes and and that sort of thing I remember seeing an article on uh Seven Faces of Dr. Lowe mm-hmm. uh, it was either in Look or Life magazine and I think that was maybe the first time I kind of became aware of you know, like one, what make how makeup can transform an actor into a variety of characters because they had all the different, you know, looks for Tony Randall. Right. So that kind of, I'm sure that was a little bit of a spark. You know, Planet of the Apes in 68, you know, was another one. And then Famous Monsters had that Rick Baker Monster Maker article in like 1970. And I think that really kind of nudged me in the direction because up until that point, any photos you'd see of, makeup artist, it was all like, you know, John Chambers in a, a lab coat and, right. a, and a tie, and it, it, and it was all these old men basically doing it. And, <laughs> and you know, I was like 12 or something, and here was this long-haired, you know, hippie kid who was, Rick's eight years older than me, so, you know, he's like 19 or 20 doing like schlock, and for me, it, I thought it was better than what, you know, these guys were doing in Planet of the Apes. I mean, just the, like the forms and the sculpture and stuff and the mm. schlock makeup, I, you know, I think it's just as good or better than anything in, you know, apes. So that at least made it seem attainable that, you know, a kid could do this. Of course, I was living in Texas, so that was, you know, a hurdle that had to be overcome. But at least, you know, that pushed me in that direction. That's wild. Yeah, uh, we love Famous Monsters in Filmland. And that issue that you mentioned, the... I mean, that's that's like one of the most iconic of the Famous Monster issues for makeup artists because that was the one that really showed you know, what could be done at that time and really, I think, inspired a lot of people to to move out, pick up a makeup kit and start making monsters. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's, you know, different depending on the age group of people you're talking to. I mean, you know, obviously the thing inspired a lot of, you know, an, a different generation, but for yeah. people of my age, yeah, the, um, the, the whole, the Rick Baker, monster maker, you know, thing really, you know, was a spark for a lot of us. And now this, this comic book club that's what springboarded you into makeups and stuff like that Was well the same group of people well again I, I i through that club i met this this friend of mine ken that again taught me some very basic you know 
makeup techniques. I had another friend who I met separately, but he was also part of the club, this guy, John Fishner, who taught me some basic sculpture. Uh, you know, I took sculpting lessons from him when I was like 10 or 12, and he was a stop motion fan. Mm. He's since done, I know he's done some like low budget stuff in Texas, you know, since then. But this club also sponsored the comic book and science fiction conventions that came to town. And in fact, this John Fishner uh, had a couple of cons called Spectrum Con that uh, in 76, he had Jim Danforth as a guest. In 77, he had Rick Baker as a guest. And up to that point, the other conventions were more nostalgia-oriented, so they'd have like Kirk okay. Allen or right. you know whatever. It'd be more like B-movie and serials and westerns and stuff. But Fishner was more of a special effects fan. So again, he had Danforth and then he had Rick Baker. So I, you know, that's where I met Rick Baker. That was 1977. That was the same convention that uh, Steve Johnson and Matthew Mungle uh, met Rick. Mm -hmm. um, they were both, you know, a little further along talent-wise than I was. Uh, I admit some of the stuff I had the nerve to show Rick then was just complete <laughs> crap, you know. Um, I'm surprised he, you know, gave me his phone number and his address and, you know, would even talk to me after you know sometimes it's about the passion though like just sh showing up and being like hey i'm sure, way yeah. into the stuff that you're doing like that people respect that regardless of what you've you know what you're showing them yeah i i, I trust he saw something i mean because we did keep in touch and well, he's hired you right well and he and i've worked i've worked for him a number of times since then but yeah this was again 1977 so that's it it's so it must have been so different like i always i always joke about it but it's true i feel like i was born about 10 15 years later than I should have been. Right. And hearing a story about a sci-fi and comic convention, whereas now I don't even think that type of thing really exists anymore because both of those areas of pop culture have gotten so big that they now their own entities and you couldn't really in a in a big place. I'm sure there's little towns that have stuff, but I'm like I'm imagining you in Houston having a group of people or a place where you can go and celebrate both comics and horror movies and effects and stuff. And I feel like you and I being as into comics as we are, I don't think most people, maybe you're a little older than I am, maybe your generation still has that passion for comics. But I feel like most people my age don't really care about comics anymore. And I'm, I'm generalizing. Right. But Well, no, I mean, like I look at the state of modern comics and also of a lot of the films, and I, don't, I think if I was born later, I don't think the stuff would have interested me to the degree that it did sure. to inspire me to get into this line of work. I have no mm -hmm. idea what I would be doing, but uh, particularly the comic books. I mean, the only thing I really read, I mean, I read some of Mignola's Hellboy stuff. That stuff's still good. Otherwise, I'm buying reprints from like the, you know, the Marvel stuff from the 50s and 60s. They just came out with those great Kirby uh, monster bus, yeah. uh, you know, the two volumes with all of his, you know, Atlas and Marvel monster stories, yeah. which if you look at the thank you page on the first volume, my brother and I have a, a credit on there. A thank really? You. So that, that was kind of a nice little... What's the uh, thank you for? My brother... Uh, provided them with some uh, scans of some original art that they used in the uh, in the back of the book, oh, like cool. a little gallery thing. So, um, And a couple of the pages might be something that we co-own, but I think mainly he just threw my name in there, too, because he's like, oh, you know, you'd like to see your name in a Kirby book, wouldn't you? It was pretty cool, right? Yeah, oh, yeah, no, that was great. Really that cool. was like, whoa, you know, when I got volume two, I was like, oh, I'm not in that one. But, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, it, it was great, yeah. So that's, you know, I mean, he's my, you know, all-time favorite 
comic book artist, and uh, that's why I like this new Thor movie with you know, Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. It's just got all the, the Kirby graphics everywhere. Sure, and, I and, love that they're using those costumes. That Kirby stuff was always the best. He was, well, even, I don't know how I missed this when I first saw the trailer, but my brother pointed it out. Just behind the titles, you know, in space, they've got the Kirby uh, Cosmic Energy or Cosmic... The Kirby know, Crackle. Crackle, yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I always just call it, it's Cosmic Energy <laughs> to me, damn it. The, I, don't, I don't need the alliteration. That sounds too much like a breakfast cereal, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, but I'd, yeah, I'd eat that cereal. We need to do a commercial for that. Let's bump in a commercial. <laughs> there you go. The Kirby Crackle. <laughs> but but it's just so cool that. Uh, in fact, I was in um, Scotland when the uh, doing working on Avengers three when uh, the Thor Ragnarok commercial dropped or trailer dropped, and um, somebody online had pointed out there's that one shot in the trailer where you have uh, Loki and uh, Jeff Goldblum sitting on the couch or whatever watching the yeah. gladiatorial you know games. And behind Loki is a, uh, it's, there's Kirby art on the background. And behind Loki is a very easily recognizable piece from, I think it's Fantastic Four 64. Um, so somebody like posted like, hey, they used, you know, Jack Kirby art. So then I was like, well, I wonder where that other stuff's from. So I spent like three hours online. <laughs> and uh, the ones behind Jeff Goldblum are composed of a couple of different Kirby drawings. But like I found like one, I go, okay, well, that's most of it. Wait a minute, what about this? piece that looks like a guitar you know and then i searched and oh, okay that's they've lifted that from something else so that's pretty cool so just you know it's like who else would sit there and you know just scan through kirby images for three hours looking for <laughs> you know that's fandom man i mean oh, yeah. you got to break it down deconstruct it find out where all your favorite stuff came from that's awesome exactly that's 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 fun stuff i didn't realize you own so much original art and, and stuff well i, I won't say so much there was i mean not all the original art in that book is uh, from my from my brother and i but no but you you mentioned multiple pages I yeah didn't, i didn't realize i knew you were a collector of the books i didn't realize you also had art as well a little bit i, I wish i had a lot more that's um when my, my i have a 27 year old son and uh whatever back when he was 10 or younger we were starting to save for his college and had i taken that money <laughs> and bought kirby art and then sure. sold it when you know it came time i could have made a much better return on you know i, I know people that you know bought like a machine man story for like a, a thousand bucks that you know then they've been selling each page for like right. a thousand bucks now yeah. so you know it's yeah so you're like oh geez what are, you know who knows <laughs> but um oh let me give you one more fan thing real quick and uh, now that don't we're talking rush. about comic book stuff um <laughs> you guys i'm sure all these listeners know who guy davis is we're facebook friends and he had a little uh posting that he had done a few years ago where he had done a lon cheney phantom of the opera so he had like the blue line pencil and he had the the inked version then he digitally you know colored it and it was you know very cool of course because all the guys stuff is, is so neat yeah but then so everybody's you know oh that's cool that's great and i was like hey you ever done pennywise and then like an hour later he posts this pennywise picture and then he like sends me the private message you know send me your address and i'll mail it to you oh. so yeah so now that's like framed and you know hanging on my wall so oh how cool is yeah that? that's so that was, really cool i was really like wow so now i gotta like start befriending other comic book artists and go hey uh you ever draw pennywise (laughs) right um, but yeah that i was just you know very you know very pleased that's super cool so what got you out of texas and and over to hollywood okay well that's a long story but i guess we got nothing but time here (laughs) again through the uh, convention connections i made a friend who uh ernie farino who lived in dallas at the time uh ernie's was public he published the fxrh uh magazine in the um 70s mm-hmm. he was a stop-motion animator he moved out in the late 70s to la and worked at new world the roger corman 
uh, place. Oh yeah, now the lumber yard, as they called it back then. So, I, but I would correspond with Ernie and send him photos of you know makeups and sculptures and whatnot. And I guess he had a stack of some of my stuff. And they were working on Forbidden World. Uh, this would have been 1981. They needed some extra people. So I guess he had shown my stuff to Beekler, who was running the, the creature shop. And, you know, I don't remember if Beekler or Ernie or somebody called and just said, hey, you want to come out and work on, you know, Forbidden World. I was getting 50 bucks a day. I worked on it. I worked on it for a week. This was two weeks before I was going to get married. So, yeah, which my wife was like, or wife-to-be, you know, she's still my wife. But uh, she was not, you know, she was like, you're coming back, aren't you? You know, I had to pay my way out there. I had to rent a car. I had a friend going to college wow. who, so I, you know, at least I had a place to stay. I stayed in, you know, his dorm room. So, yeah, so, I mean, I made $250, but I, I have no idea how much it, obviously it cost me more than that, but I met Mark Showstrom there, you know, so I, I, who I ended up working, I did three or four films with, you know, after that, because we stayed in touch. So it more than paid for itself just in the connections. It's also, it was a real movie and it, you know, I, so I had a, a real credit on my, you know, uh, resume and not, you know, the slow budget, you know, whatever type stuff that I'd been working on to that point. I just watched this movie. I just watched Forbidden World and for what it is, I, I love it because it's so cheesy and it's so Corman, like it's so purely Roger Corman. But like one of the things that I find so funny is you you must have walked on set and been like, why is there takeout containers plastered all Glued over the, the set? <laughs> Everything was just oh. takeout containers. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, I mean, that was pretty cool because at least that was more like, oh, this is clever. You know, <laughs> um, John Beekler was heading up the makeup effects. Steve Neal was uh, building the monster. Mm -hmm. And Neal... Uh, I think this was only Beekler's first or, you know, second movie or something. It was one of his, you know, whereas Neil was a little more seasoned. So Neil had a pretty nine-to-five attitude. He's like, oh, time to go home, you know, and he would just, you know, leave. And uh, then Beekler's like, oh, we'll, we'll stay, we'll do it. And then meaning us, because I think Chris Biggs, I think Chris Biggs was on that too. So we picked up a lot of slack that, um, like that when the creature dies at the end, yeah. I don't know if Neil had anything in mind for that but again Beekler took it upon himself that we were going to do this effect so we ended up building this we had like one by fours and we built this like crappy wooden frame that <laughs> it was like a Chinese dragon like you'd see in a you know a parade uh, they we they had like a polyphone pull of this monster's head on the front of it I'm not even sure what made up the body if it was just like it plastic like, bags it and, looks like trash bags yeah. covered yeah. in liquid latex it probably was because he like <laughs> when they kill him and he like vomits vomits all that pink goo that was uh, that was polyfoam that um, <laughs> so they had um I, I think it was Mark and one other guy are inside, you know, dancing around, making the thing move, and me and some other guy are outside, like, stirring up this foam and then handing it under the, the thing, and then they're, like, dumping it out of the mouth as it's expanding. Polyfoam yeah. is, it's usually traditionally a two-part liquid. You mix it together, and then as you mix it, it starts to get hot, and it starts to foam, so it literally expands and turns from a liquid into, like, a, a sponge. So, so I can only imagine using that in the middle of a shot as an effect. That's amazing. Right. Well, yeah, it's either rigid foam is, like, what they make surfboards out of, and then the flexible, which I, I don't even remember if this was rigid or soft. It's probably soft because <laughs> that's probably what they were foaming up the, you know, the monster with. But uh, that's like a mattress foam. Mm -hmm. But the, the more... Um, Important part of the story too is that it also it gives off cyanide gas yes. when yeah, it, it's as it expands. Super dangerous. I'm sure everyone was wearing the proper respirators oh, yeah. and you a, can be sure a greatly ventilated area. <laughs> in fact, not not to jump ahead too much. When I was doing Pet Cemetery Two, uh, we're in Atlanta and we're having a meeting uh, on one of the stages one day, 
and they're building a, a set out of foam. So you walk into the set, and it's just like this London fog. I mean, there's so much, you know, just cyanide fumes and shit in the air, you know. But there's so standing in the middle of the stage is like the director who's like four or five months pregnant, and all these other guys. And like I come walking in, and I just the first thing I just go, I go, you know, this is poisonous <laughs> gas that we're standing it's in the middle. Of. Yeah, I go, this is so, literally so they, cyanide. So at least they all like you know didn't about face and went outside, and we had the meeting in the you know the fresh air. Oh, let's see, what was, I got some other forbidden world. There was um, the, remember the tumor? Yeah. Think, okay, that was uh, Beekler took an orange. You know, painted latex on it, then cut it and turned it inside out, and then that was the that was a tumor. And then he then he stuffed it with like uh, with steak for the like the with fat bits. and stuff hanging out. Oh of it. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was somebody's job to you know at the end of the day they'd put it in a nice chest and you know put it on ice so they could use it the next, next day. <laughs> but of course, you know, you come in and it's like, hey, where's the tumor? And it's like, oh, I don't know. I guess somebody must have left it on set. Oh, no. So exactly. So it was very easy to find because you just you know, I remember walking in and just kind of taking a couple of sniffs and like, oh, there it is. You <laughs> Follow know? your nose. Yes, it was. It was horrible. To give people just a quick moment for what this tumor is. Spoiler alert! But the, <laughs> they find out they can kill the monster with with cancer, and the, there's a doctor who, through the entire movie, is smoking, and he's like, "I have cancer, so let's use my tumors to kill the monster." And they're like, "Great! How do we get him?" He's like, "Cut me open," and so they're like, "We don't know how to do that." I'll tell you. <laughs> and so he's lying on a table, and he's just basically, like, "Yep, just cut right here." And they start cutting him over. He's screaming and stuff, and he's like, "Reach to the left a little." It's like, no, this is the worst plan you could possibly come up with. But they pull out a tumor, and then they're like, "How do we get it in the monster's mouth?" And this guy literally runs over and starts punching it down this creature's throat, <laughs> which then leads to the polyfoam vomit. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you you remember the movie better than I do. I literally I saw, saw it this week. Those you know, okay. movies are our bread and butter. I've been out in L.A. now for. I think just about 12 years, 13 years, something like that. But starting the first week I was out here, we started doing Shitty Movie Sunday, which is just like what it sounds Right. And as long as I've been in town, and now that I moved in with my wife, as long as my wife doesn't need the living room, we do Shitty Movie Sunday. We must have done, I mean, hundreds if not a thousand of those movies. You, you probably those burned, are our bread and butter. <laughs> you probably burned through half of my career there. So, uh, <laughs> well, that's, th this, this may not translate very well on audio but since you guys can watch me I'll I'll, I'll tell you this story too because again this was like my first Hollywood movie so yeah. you're thinking that these people know more than you do <laughs> um, you know because I'm, I'm just the idiot from you know Texas right. and uh, which I actually I have a similar story for Robocop if you guys remind me later but we will um, remind you I promise <laughs> okay but there, there's a scene where there's a there's a, a like a a body on a like an exam table. Yeah, and it's all rotted and half his face know. is gone. It's, yeah. it's a really great half face makeup. Yeah, actually that that thing I thought looked pretty good. Um, Looks I mean, great. Yeah, Beekler was you know cranking out some some nice stuff. But the the whole gag is that they they think it's dead and then uh, they're leaning in looking at it and then the hand like grabs somebody. Mm -hmm. So I'm there looking at it and it's like a four by eight table and this thing where the they got a hole cut so you can stick your hand up at the wrist to do the grabbing. But the hole is like maybe a foot away from the edge of the table. So I'm like looking at it. I'm like, well, how the hell is he going to reach anybody? It's like, shouldn't you have it at the elbow so at least it can, you know, hinge over? And then the next day the forearm's missing and they got a hole up, you know, for the elbow. <laughs> it's like, well, at least they listen, you know. But again, it's like I, I had to come up with this, you know. And similarly, I had just done a horrible thing called Curse of the Screaming Dead. Uh, which was one of these mail order. I, I used to do a lot of 
mail order makeup effects things where I'd build a crap in Texas and just ship it off to you know Virginia yeah. or wherever the hell they were filming it, Florida. That's how I met Fred Olin Ray uh, by doing stuff for him in Florida. Is, is that early trauma or another Corman? Neither. It's it's yeah. even even worse. Even worse. Yeah. Um, and it's yeah, do not watch Curse of the Screaming Dead. It is uh, all that means to me is like Amazon that the minute you leave. <laughs> the definitive <laughs> shitty. Uh, yeah. It's it's uh, with capital letters. Um, but I'd done like I had a stock zombie mask that I'd made at one point and um, when I was visiting Rick Baker once he had shown me these alien heads where he'd taken like one mask and then did cotton and latex and made like three similar but you know different which it's not like a super innovative thing but at the time in 1977 78 it was like oh that's clever so I'd done the same thing with the zombie heads I'd made them like six masks you know based off of this one so I had photos of that with me when I went out to work with uh, Beekler, you know, on Forbidden World. Um, so I was showing him, you know, that. And then I guess he was impressed by it because whatever, I forget the next thing he did for Corman, uh, some sword and sorcery thing, I think. But uh, again, I was keeping in touch with Mark Shostrom. So he goes, oh, well, we're, we're making these uh, zombie army and, you know, and what we're doing is just what, you know, you did. We're taking one head and then we're altering it and making, you know, multiple heads. I'm like, oh, okay, at least he knows a good idea when he sees it. <laughs> um, and I mean, and John was John was a nice guy. I mean, I have a, that was the only time I worked for him. You know, I bump into him once in a while and actually most recently, sadly enough, at John Vulich's uh, wake, so uh, mm. but yeah, but uh, yeah, Beekler, he's done. He's ga he gave a lot of people, you know, their start. So he he was certainly a, yeah. He had his fingers in a lot of different stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I, I you know I do a week on Forbidden World, mm -hmm. and then I have to I'm you know I got to leave because I I'm, got this marriage yeah, thing. Yeah, going I got got to get married. I got my honeymoon <laughs> you know paid for and all that. So again, I've known Rick. This is 1981, so I've known Rick for four years, and Rick's got a. Uh, a kind of mean sense of humor, I guess, is, uh, you know, you don't want, want to be on the receiving end of that. So I, I swing by his shop the day before I'm leaving. He's working on Videodrome. And he's like, oh, you know, what are you doing? I go, well, I, I got to get home, get married. He's like, oh, that's too bad. I could use some extra help. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just, you know, screwing with me, you know. So I, you know, don't really think any more of it. And I leave. And then when I get back from my honeymoon, I'm, again, I've, been keeping in touch with Mark Shostrom. I'm like, hey, Mark, what are you doing? Oh, I'm working for Rick Baker on Videodrome. And I'm like, crap, he wasn't kidding, you know. But had I, you know, hey, honey, I'm not coming home, you know, that would have been, uh, yeah, that would have been a whole other thing. Um, and we also went by the thing shop, but we couldn't get in. So uh, oh, man. that was, that was frustrating. So anyway, but then, then I did meet, so I kept in touch with Mark Shostrom. Then I did Raw Courage with him in 83. Nightmare on Elm Street in 84, or no, The Supernaturals in 84, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in 85. And so I was slowly building a, a body of work and portfolio with some real movies in it. Yeah. So then when I did, uh, after I did Chainsaw 2 and RoboCop in 86, then I moved out to L.A. in 87. So. Wow. That that just that just it gives us so many launch on yeah. points for just like <laughs> movies that we love. Where do you want to go first? Thinking about your career, what's one effect that you did that you were super proud of, super happy with how it turned out, and just love it from start to finish, from, from any project that you've worked on, any either overall film or a character or a specific effect. Right. I think certainly Pennywise, because as any of these, anybody that works in the effects biz, a lot of people, you, seldom do you really get to do something start to finish. Mm. You know, so I mean, you know, I've worked on a lot of great stuff. That's like when I tell people like, oh, it's nice to have one iconic character. They're like, oh, you've worked on a lot of iconic stuff. And it's like, well, but I didn't, you know, design The Grinch or I didn't design RoboCop. I mean, I got to help apply and whatnot. And it's great to be a part of those. But Pennywise, it was my designs, my sculpture, you know, my application. So at least 
that one I think kind of fits that definition where from start to finish it was my sure. you know my baby. One thing we did I was happy with on Fright Night 2 that I don't think anyone else had done at that point but I think it's probably been imitated a bit since then the regine bat creature that's in the elevator mm-hmm. basically it was like a, an over the head mask with like the muzzle and stuff built out from the face and a lot of stuff that people would do at that point everything was outside the mouth and there would be like a black cloth in the back and mm-hmm. you'd have maybe an underskull or, or whatever but there was never really any depth to the to the mouth if they opened its if it opened its mouth you'd just kind of see this black in the back so i didn't want that so we worked out a way to where she could have you know like this probably three or four inch denture on the outside of her mouth and then on the other end of it went into her mouth and clipped over her teeth so the upper palate extended from you know outside of her mouth into her mouth and then on the lower the lower teeth were on like a jaw piece that went around her lower jaw but the tongue clipped over her lower teeth and then went out of the mouth into the lower jaw so when she opened her mouth you had the depth of her you know you're looking down her throat so it it just made it you know seem more organic and and uh, you might i think you maybe i mean we painted like the sides of her mouth so they just look like the back of her throat and so it, it was a neat illusion that again i don't think uh, i can think of anyone who had done that prior to that and then afterwards suddenly there was all the you know oh we got the teeth on the outside that then clip into the right right right. oh where'd you get that idea (laughs) but um other stuff like when i was working on mark showstrom's team on the elm street 2 transformation we did all the jesse Mm -hmm. effects like the eye opening up in the back of freddie's throat that was just something that i you know hey what if it did this and you know, oh, how cool. So just, oh, I always, cool. thank you. I, th- I always thought that was a nice visual. And then like I was working on Insidious 3 a couple of years ago and they do the same gag in there, but it's, you know, digital. Mm-hmm. And it's like, hey, where'd you get that idea? You know, so, so it's, <laughs> we were, it's like, look, I'm being ripped off. You know? We were just talking about Freddy 2 because like that one, it's not the same as the other, the rest in the franchise. And it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> we told each other we weren't going to say that, but you know, I, I hated it. But, uh, you know, whatever. I'm glad it has its fans. Well, let's let's talk about Freddy for a second. When you were working on the second one, you had seen the first one, right? Right. The first one is obviously at this point a staple. When that one was released and it first came out, or let's say right around the time you start working on the second one, was the first one getting to that cult status, not even cult, but that classic status that it is today, was it, did everyone know it was this great movie? Yeah, I mean, we were at least, you know, on the makeup effects teams and stuff, I mean, we were very jazzed that we were very aware that we were working on the sequel, mm. and, and we were all excited because of that, because we were all fans of of the first one. I mean, it was, back then, those kind of movies were few and far between, you know, you get Halloween or Shockwaves, and maybe you were lucky if you got one a year, right. you know, and that actually come out at Halloween, oddly enough, you yeah. know. But, uh, so yeah, we were excited that we were working on the Nightmare on Elm Street sequel. In fact, the the producers, which I don't know if this was Mark's smartest business move or not, but the Mark had a relationship with the producers more so than Kevin Yeager did. So, as I understand it, they basically offered Mark, like, you can either do Freddy or you can do the transformation. And Mark felt Freddie had already been done and mm-hmm. that he would be able to shine more with the transformation, which, I mean, we were trying to do like an American werewolf, you know, kind of showstopper, which I think we succeeded. And, and Mark was certainly riding the, the wave there in the 60s. I mean, Evil Dead 2 and From Beyond. And, I mean, he was poised to be the next big thing. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that, at least at the time, it seemed like he made the right decision. I mean, Kevin Yeager obviously took off like a rocket, you know, after doing Freddy and, and it was constant work for him with all the sequels and the TV show. And 
So it's kind of hard to say if had Mark chosen the Freddy makeup, who knows what would have happened. Sure, that's interesting. Yeah, that transformation is such a that I think that's probably one of the best moments of the movie because he's you know comes out of the kids hands and like bursts out of his chest to put that together like how many different setups is that whole sequence because you have the hand you have the chest you have the the kid's head like what what how many setups did that take to make it happen i'd have to sit there and count but basically pretty much every cut is a different effect wow Mm. the script was uh, i think fairly vague or at least i remember i did the storyboards for mark for the for that sequence and mark had some specific ideas i remember drawing I, i boarded the sequence as scripted and I like purposely like made the kid look goofy like put freckles on him and stuff because we didn't uh, we didn't want to do that version so and then I made Mark's look you know I drew it better and because mm-hmm. we wanted to push that one so Mark designed the sequence but it pretty much again every every cut is is a different effect so I mean we had 11 weeks to, to build everything and we we also did the tongue when Jesse's making out at the party with his girlfriend, and he's got the long tongue, mm-hmm. um, which I mechanized that. Mark took a stab at it, and uh, I think Anthony Shaw did, and Greg Punchatz is working with us. I don't know if he did or not, but they all failed miserably at uh, mechanizing this tongue. And so then I, I was giving it some thought, and I guess kind of seeing what they were doing and you know what wasn't working. So, like I came in, and I go today. I'm going to build the tongue mechanism to end all tongue mechanisms. And they're like, oh yeah, sure. <laughs> so then I put one together, and it was pretty much, I guess, standard fare for what they do now. It was a, like a spine with like uh, ribs or mm-hmm. plates, you know, with and then uh, three cables. It was like a triangular, like a set of increasingly larger triangular plates that you know had cables. So um, it was three that. You know, depending on the way you pulled them, you right. could, it, two would make it go up, or the one would make it go down, or you know, one or two into the side, or whatever. Anyway, it worked, so we shot it with it. And then um, when Mark was doing From Beyond, I heard he had pulled that mechanism out and was showing it to like Dave Kenlin and the guys who were doing his mechanics, like here, you know, make stuff like this. So the so that was kind of flattering. So again, it's just like oh, I guess this will work. Um, <laughs> it was like popsicle sticks and you know dental <laughs> acrylic and you know pretty crude stuff. Again, so yeah, you'd have to. I mean, there's uh, probably a good half dozen or a dozen pieces. It's um, amazing. Well, it works. You know, it and it is. So well. We were talking about it before you came. We were coming up with some of the stuff that we wanted to talk over with you. We wanted to hit that movie, and we were like. Both of us immediately were like, the best part of that movie is when Freddy comes out of him. That's the whole movie really hinges on that moment. That being said, the rest of the movie, when you guys were working on, even if you were just working that small part, did you see any of the rest of it and be like, this is Nightmare on Elm Street? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, we, we didn't, we weren't going on set a lot. I mean, because again, we were, we had 11 weeks to build and it was like 16 hour days, seven days a week. I remember the last push to get everything done was like a 40 hour, oh, you know, it, it did seem a little off model, I right, guess. Yeah, that's, um, good, that's a good way to say it. And um, in fact, it was real weird. I remember some early uh, meetings they were having, they, the production came super close not to bring in Robert England back. They were oh, like, oh my God. Yeah, which oh, is man, like, that would have been. Oh, yeah, that would have, that would have, that have killed like, the franchise right there. It's like you guys don't even recognize what's making your movie work. I mean, that's why you have characters like Pennywise or Freddy or that are memorable is because you have a real actor, you know, in the makeup. I mean, that's why everything that Ron Perlman or Doug Jones does, you know, is so cool because it's it's not on some lumbering stuntman. It's, you know, yeah. it's, it's on an actor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they would have just... Because they just, well, he's in the dark, you never see him. Why does it have to be, you know, this expensive actor? What's what they do with Jason or whatever? And it's like, hey, you guys are out of your mind. Right. You know? 
So thankfully they didn't do that or I, I wouldn't have worked on part four. <laughs> oh, there you go. I remember when the, the original V miniseries came out, I was really into that. And Robert England is in that right. as, a, as a visitor, but I don't know that we ever see him in, a, in a, the lizard face, but he's definitely like a nicer one. Like he's not a, a, a malicious guy. Yeah, he's the friendly one. Right. And I remember my dad, I watched it. It was like one of the things me and my dad did together for sure. Like whatever that week was or two weeks, we watched every episode together. And we're sitting on the couch and I remember my dad was like, see that guy? That guy is Freddy Krueger. And like I understood that this was not real. Even if it scared me, I knew it wasn't real. So when he said, this is Freddy Krueger, I remember in my mind being like, not afraid of that anymore. <laughs> like right. I clearly he was this little nerdy little visitor guy. Oh, yeah. Like, he- oh. Well, in that case... <laughs> yeah, he was not intimidating at all when you out of makeup, but that was another reason for me to, that I hate uh, Elm Street 2, is the uh, the visual of Freddy in the first one, like the sweater is very, is oversized. Sure. And he looks like Buddy Ebsen or something. I mean, he's like all disheveled and, um, you know, baggy clothes and he's very lanky and just this real kind of skeletal, weird, you know, looking figure. And then for whatever reason, and I don't know if it was just the... The production asked them to do this, or maybe the costumer was just incompetent. But he, like his sweater is much too tight in the second one. He, he became he went from like a horror figure to almost like a superhero. I mean, he looks very mm-hmm. powerful and heroic. And they also screwed up the um, the continuity on the sweater. The first one, the sleeves are red, yep. and the stripes are just on the body. <laughs> yeah, and then on the second one, suddenly the whole thing's striped, and it's just like. <laughs> Well, you can't like look I, at the damn, you know. You we, can't even we, get the sweater right. Yeah, yeah and uh, <laughs> I forget what her name was, but I remember because we had done the Supernaturals with the same costumer, and Mark uh, Mark didn't care for her much. He always said he wanted to take an unabridged, unabridged dictionary and hit her in the throat with it. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I think he might have had a problem with her. But um, well, and that was the other deal. Like, we, we're doing the transformation on Jesse. And, and again, like, every cut is a different effect. So we needed, like, you know, 12 shirts that he that we could chop up because one had to, we had to go through the back on one and right. one had to go over this mechanism or, you know, whatever. And she's like, oh, well, this is, you know, these are very hard to find. You know, these were, and it's like, oh, well, you picked the most unique and difficult to duplicate <laughs> shirt for the scene where he needs, you know, multiples. It's like, what the hell were you thinking? You know, so <laughs> just, just that kind of crap, asshole. you know, <laughs> so, but anyway, but we, uh, but it's, uh, I, I think it's definitely the, the highlight of the film. Easily, yeah. I remember taking some going to see with some friends back in Houston and um, just being like, oh, you know, so horrified by it, um, <laughs> which I, um, I had a similar thing. I, like I worked on Chainsaw Massacre too, which at the time I've gotten a little warmed up to that one a little bit, but at the time I didn't really care for it. And I remember I was working on RoboCop when Chainsaw 2 came out and I was like, hey guys, I worked on Chainsaw 2. It's, you know, we ought to all go see it. They're like, hey, we're busy. So I went and saw it by myself, and I was like, you know, when I came out, I was like, thank God, these, you know, my coworkers didn't didn't come see this with me, you know. So, um, but nice again, job, kid. <laughs> I, I, again, I, I think it's um, it's aged better. I mean, I've seen it a yeah. few times recently. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. Like, I mean, it definitely is such a departure from the first one. And I mean, the first one's so iconic for what it did and what it did for the horror genre. And the second one, it's kind of fun and goofy in a weird sort of way. But like, like you said, it, it if you're not in the mood for a direct sequel to the original you know, in that same vibe and style. It's like, yeah, it's a good time. There's a chainsaw fight. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and also I the script for it, I really liked when I read it. Yeah. There's so much that's not in 
the the final cut really? that, that was in the script. So I think a lot of it I was distracted by that, like, hey, where was that? You know, why yeah. why isn't that there? So I think that was part of it. But then again, years later, I, I've revisited it, and again, I'm um, I'm, I'm less harsh <laughs> on it. I, I I think it I think it does. I think it has aged well. So, but like you say, it's not. It's not the same thing. So if you're expecting yeah, that, so you're not going to get it. Yeah. So for Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, what did you specifically do on it? I was on Savini's crew for that. Mm-hmm. I was still living in Houston. My brother was living in L.A. And so he knew, like Sean McEnroe worked on it. We knew him from Rick Baker. My brother had met Mitch Devane and uh, John Bulich and, and guys like that. So through him, I knew it was coming to Austin. So I had been in touch with Savini for uh, since before Creepshow. I remember I sent him a package of uh, samples and stuff when he was crewing up for Creepshow. And in fact, I think I seem to recall him going like, oh, yeah, I got your stuff. He goes, it's too early to to say, but you're definitely in there in terms of being on the crew. So I'm like, yay. So then like, I don't hear anything for a month or two, so I get back to him, and he's like, what? No, I've already got my crew. I'm like, good damn it. So anyway, I was trying to get on Chainsaw 2. Finally, uh, like I was calling him and stuff, and Vulich told my brother to tell me, you know, he goes, he goes Tom's never going to hire you over the phone. He goes, just get in your car and drive out there and meet him, and then he'll he'll hire you. So I drove out there on the weekend, met him probably on Sunday, and then he hired me, so I drove back to Houston, quit my job, you know, went in my job Monday morning, quit, and then I had my car packed, and then I just drove to Austin and then, you know, did worked on the show. So by the time I got on it, all the characters had been assigned. You know, uh, McEnroe had Chop Top, uh, Mitch had uh, Leatherface, and the, uh, the uh, hitchhiker dummy, uh, Vulich was doing The Old Man. And uh, Gino was doing the the skinned guy. So I was just doing kind of general lab stuff. I ran foam uh, on the show uh, before we started shooting. Once uh, photography started, I would I assisted Sean a few times with the chop top makeup, and then I, they would make them up in the shop and send them to set, and then I'd go to set and watch them. I did the leather face. I did his lips and eyes for underneath the mask. The lips were, uh, there was a material called Elvisite, which uh, I don't think anybody uses anymore, but it's basically like scar plastic. It was a, a resin and acetone that you would mix up, and depending on the, the ratios, it would you could get it thicker or thinner. Like the uh, scanners, the, the bulging veins, those were Elvisite appliances that Dick Smith uh, developed, and then you mix it up thinner and more of like a, not really a paste, but you know, kind of like toothpaste or something, and then you can do build-up stuff with it. So, like, the, the ulcers on Leatherface's lips were, you know, built up with that. And basically, I just, you know, would watch that and help with the, that sort of thing. The uh, When the guy gets killed in the, um, when Chop Top goes to the radio station, and I forget the, not, not stretch, whoever the guy that gets skinned, when he gets beaten to death with a hammer, um, yeah. Toby wanted some uh, some hammer wounds on him. So, like, I, I did those out of the kit, you know, which is, that's probably uh, one of the few things that I can say, hey, I did that. The other thing I did do, on it that got cut out was um, we had a um, this, this is a, one of my favorite uh, chainsaw stories. They had a there was a um, a sequence uh, in a parking garage where some like college drunken college kids were encountered the, the Saul family and they get all chopped up and one guy was going to get his hand cut off and then you were going to see the hand laying on the ground and it like flips him off um, <laughs> and um, you know the severed hand so they, they hired a an amputee a guy who had I, I forget how he had lost his hand but he had fairly recently lost his arm so they, he came in the shop and I took a life cast of his stump and sculpted the piece on that and then I think it was John Bulich's hand 
uh, that we did the, the other part to go on the wrist for the hand, you know, sticking up from the ground. And while I'm doing the guy's cast and it's like, oh, you know, you're going to be okay, you know, doing this because like we're cutting your hand off in a movie. And he goes, oh, chainsaw, it's going to be cool, you know, and he's all jazzed. And then the, um, the day it, it works, I believe John Vulich did the makeup and, you know, he gets the stomp on the guy and he gets it blended and he puts the blood on it and the guy's like, no! And he just, like, <laughs> took off. And, he, you know, he, could, he couldn't do it. He's like, you know, too soon. Wow. You know? Yeah. Oh, so no. I think I remember I was coming into the to the lab to see how it was going and, like, I, I'd seen the guy, like, out in the parking lot just, like, diminishing in the distance, you know, and I was really just like, oh, yeah, he'll be back in a minute and I'm like, I don't think so. <laughs> it's like, I think yeah, I just saw him, you know, booking it. So I think they um, rigged something else to... So that I think in the edited footage there is a version of that scene, and they may have still used the severed hand. Which it, so again, the, the only thing I basically the only thing I got to sculpt for the movie pretty much got cut out right. because this guy you know, <laughs> because the guy cut yeah, out. Yeah, it's like damn it! Wow, you know that I do practical stuff. Rumi used to do practical. Now he does digital. But we've both we've both put our time in the trenches of of making stuff, bringing stuff to set. There's definitely, in at least our, our careers, there's been situations where we made something and it looked great, then we brought it to set and it either didn't look as good on set or when we saw it on film, it didn't look as good as it did in the shop or vice versa where you look at something and you're like, shit, I don't know, how is this going to work? And then you bring it on set and they love it. Do you have either one way or another, any, anything from either Texas or any other show that would kind of be one or, or the other of those? So much of that, especially now that's out of your hands. Yeah. And even even back then, it's uh, like the way they shoot it, the way they edit it. Like I'll work on shows, even fairly recently, where you'll get a DP that's actually there trying to help you. They're like, oh, you know, I noticed, right. you know, like I'm going to put a soft light on this or, you know, whatever. And, the, and they'll do some artful lighting and, you know, and composition and angles and whatnot to, to actually help it. And sure. then I've... I've been on other shows where it's just like, no, nope, we've this is we've lit the room, and if it looks like crap, that's you know too bad. Right. And it's like, ah, really? No, 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 no <laughs> help gonna, here. We're you not know? gonna try to get this done together. Yeah, it's like, yeah, aren't we supposed to be on a team? Um, I was on uh, like the it was the second Fantastic Four movie. They're doing a shot where they thought they were like, oh, the, the thing looks a little shiny, you know, and it's in a hallway with like bare light bulbs embedded it's like in the military facility in mm -hmm. siberia wherever the hell it was but uh so they got these big bulbs every 10 feet down the hall and the way they've staged it they've got chickless against the wall and he's literally right under this light bulb it's like a foot over his head and i'm like <laughs> well it's not that he's shiny it's that you've got this light it's like stick anything under that it's going to look shiny it's right. like you know moving so yeah that kind of stuff is and again sometimes you get on a show where they'll listen to you we were doing um for fright night 2 where uh, the richie character gets the holy water in the mouth and then we have the puppet head where the throat rips open and the whole sequence it's shot at a certain height, just like at a normal person's height, looking at, you know, Richie as he comes in and all the makeup stages, you know, are all from this same angle and, you know, same height. And then when the, the first time we shot the, the puppet head, for some reason, I guess it was to show off the effect, but suddenly the camera is like kind of waist level, like looking up. Mm. And so you're like looking up his nose and uh, they get the dailies back and they go, well, they don't think the head looks that much like him. And and it's like, well, you're looking at him at this odd angle that, <laughs> right. that you've never seen him. It's like, why aren't we shooting this at a matching angle? This should just be like you've cut away and cut back. And so then they went 
and did it at that angle and it looks fine. It's, you know, it's what's in the movie. But so at least uh, I think from that, I kind of learned to sometimes you're kind of like afraid to speak up, but sure, then, yeah. you know, but then sometimes you're like, well, Hey, how about doing it right? You know, <laughs> <laughs> it takes getting screwed once to be like, I'm not keeping yeah. quiet anymore. Yeah. yeah and just, yeah, I won't say, I mean, like I care, but it's like not caring about what they're going to, what their reaction is going to be. There was a, on the first fantastic four where, um, Dr. Doom goes to the doctor and he's getting his arm x-rayed and when he's turning into the metal, you know, well, he's turning into Colossus, he's not right. turning into Dr. Doom, but, <laughs> but um, so the scene opens with like a hero shot of his arm being x-rayed, but of course they want to shoot that last, so they do the whole scene with him rolling his sleeve down over the makeup and it's a gelatin mm -hmm. and, and he's doing all this physical stuff, so when they finally get to the, um, the hero shot, it doesn't look its best and I think I kind of like under my breath was like oh great now we're going to shoot it when it looks like shit and uh and the director's like oh wait it, it, it doesn't look its best I go well no <laughs> and it doesn't it goes you know it's gotten pretty beat up you know through the course of the day and he's like well do you think you can fix it up I go well it'd be better to start with a fresh you know just an insert of a fresh application he goes okay well we'll, we'll schedule a... so they did just like an insert day I don't wow. even know if it was on Julian it might have been on somebody else but had I not said anything it would have just been right, whatever it. it was yeah. yeah, so I mean, so I, there might be a more tactful way of, of, of doing it. You know, again, at that point, I think I was just so like, I didn't care. Uh, and, and I'm sure there's been some stuff where you, you know, you've had to kind of pull it out of your ass or whatever, just kind of throw something together. So you're like, oh, this isn't, you know, but then, yeah, when you see the cut footage mm -hmm. and you're like, hey, that actually came out pretty good, any, you know. Can you think of any ass pulls that when you saw the footage were like, wow, that looks like, uh, it looks like a good thing? Yeah, do you have a MacGyver moment? This, this might come under that category. When they're killing the spider at the end of it, in all the meetings that we'd had leading up to that, I was always told we're never going to see the spider's heart. The physical effects guys were building something that was going to simulate the pumping that would read in a shadow, but it was not cosmetically photographable. It was always meant to be a shadow. So they're like, oh, it's not, don't worry about that. So I'm like, all right, I'm not making a heart. So then we get up there and they're doing the scene and they go, okay, Bart, we need the heart. And I'm like, you said I didn't, you know, need to provide one. So I was like, hey, give me a minute. So literally there was a, a foam rock that was about the right size. And um, I had some extra prosthetic. When we made the kids uh, or the bodies that are in the cocoons in the spider's cave, they were uh, dummies that had like a latex kind of netting uh, over them. And then they had these uh, kind of veiny, tumorous looking pieces. Uh, I'm not even sure what they were supposed to be, but just something cool to put on it. So I had a big handful of those left over. So literally I took this rock, a can of <laughs> spray glue, sprayed it down, slapped all these pieces on it. And we had, you know, some paint there that I threw on it and dipped it in the blood and like, oh, here's your heart. So, you know, in about two minutes, I mean, that was literally, you know, pulling it out of my ass. But, um, and I mean, it looked pretty cool. I don't, I don't think anybody thinks that it looks like a rock. No, it looks like a giant spider, uh, <laughs> eternity evil type of spirit heart. Yeah. <laughs> I buy it. There is, um, I guess... Kind of in a similar vein, um, I mean, like we'd mentioned with the Forbidden World with like the arm thing where it was like, you know, really the, the dope from Texas has to solve your problem for you. <laughs> when I first came on RoboCop, the first stuff they shot was the uh, all the ER stuff, you know, when he's after he's been shot. And uh, Margaret Prentice did most of that makeup. I think her, I, I assume Stefan Dupuis was working on it with her, but I know that she did it. But then um, she was also pregnant and we were shooting it in Dallas and it was like hotter than hell. So I don't know if she was 
only intended to be there for that first bit or if just it was just becoming physically too uncomfortable for her to be there. So she left. So they had to re get somebody else in to, to work with Stefan for the prosthetics and whatnot. So I had known Botine for a while, so uh, since like 1978. So this is 1986. So it's literally it's Saturday night at midnight. I get a call from Rob, like, hey, come up to Dallas. And okay, sure. They'd only shot a day or two with Peter in the uh, robo suit by that point. And um, the gap on his neck between the, the black piece, that like the dicky that he wore mm -hmm. down on his collarbone, and then the, the piece under his jaw, there was like a half-inch gap. Initially, they had like a foam latex ring about a, an inch, inch and a half you know, wide that they glued onto his neck, but like just the friction from, you know, the other pieces rubbing on it just shredded that. So then they started just painting it black with Pax paint and then that was balling off. So they, they, it was a problem. They weren't sure what they were going to do with it. And so again, it's like I'm the local guy from Texas and it's, uh, we had uh, black leotards that we were cutting the sleeves off of that Peter would wear underneath the suit. So, you know, we had this black spandex tube and I was like, well, why don't we just pull that over his neck, you know, <laughs> and it worked. But again, it, I'm like, nobody you know, thought of that. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like, really? It's like, <laughs> I, I got to come up with this. It, and I mean, it just seemed so obvious. I was kind of like, even like, I figured they you know, had even thought of that already, but Anyway, so that was like my... In my head, it's like while they're cutting the sleeves off these leotards, like if we could only find a black piece, <laughs> a tubular piece That's of fabric right. that would if work. If there was something we could do, what could we... And I think we probably used the same one for like 90% of the shoot. Because then you start to think like, well, did you guys already have a meeting about this? And someone said, what about using that spandex thing? And you already said no. Like is the thing I thought of the first thing that you guys yeah. thought of and you've already moved on from that? And I'm behind the game, and then you're like, "What do we use that?" And they're like, "That's a great idea." And you're like, "Everything black on the first Robocop was foam latex, mm -hmm. and then the metallic-looking parts were EST 80 or 100, like a, a urethane, and then the helmet was fiberglass. But on the second one, I think the like the stomach was fiberglass too. But mm -hmm. on the first one, it was all foam latex. So we had armor all that we would spray him to to keep him all shiny, and maybe they because this was fabric, it you know it wouldn't have the same sheen, but mm -hmm. it's like, well, it's still it's black, it's right. Better than you know, <laughs> right. It's so absorbing the light. Yeah, yes. maybe it had been discounted for that, but I mean that's what we ended up doing because the other stuff just wasn't wasn't working. Nobody complained about the shiny in that movie. <laughs> exactly. That's, yeah, that should be shiny. Sit him right under a light. <laughs> well, that's pretty great. Robocop is one of my all-time favorites. Love Robocop. So they filmed it in Texas. They shot most of it in Dallas, mm -hmm. and then the um, finale, the the third act, the whatever that factory that he's in, that's yeah. uh, outside of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And in fact, that's uh, like, cause I was there for maybe a month. And so like every, I don't know, a couple of days I'm calling up Tom Savini cause we're like an hour outside of Pittsburgh. Hey Tom, you know, Rob Bottin movie, Robocop shooting it here. You ought to come by the set. No, no, no. You know, wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. You know, and then after it came out, he's like, oh, I should have oh, come by the come, set. Should have <laughs> come by the set. It's like, yep, you should have. And, and I saw from your pictures online that you got to do some of the application for the Melted Man in RoboCop. Yeah, I was, um, I mean, I was on the Robo team. So I, I helped uh, at a variety of duties. I remember the first day I was suiting up Peter Weller. The suit was a little, it wasn't hard, but it was just, you had to put put it on him in a particular order. So it had its method. Being unfamiliar with it, it, it you know took a little getting used to. So remember after the first time, and I'll get to your melting guy in a second, but <laughs> after the first time, Peter's like, oh, I don't think this Bart guy is going to work out. He doesn't seem to be getting it. But then by the end of the week, he's the only guy that, as he put it, I was the only guy with the upper body strength to get him in the suit. So he, he was the only guy that he you know wanted dressing him. Because you had to literally, like when you got into the, the pants, you just kind of 
pick him up and let his weight, you kind of shake him down into the thing. <laughs> like a giant baby. Oh, yeah. We would uh, frequently, because we'd be, you know, on the set, and he'd be like, you know, Bart, come powder my ass. And it's like, oh, thanks, Peter, a little louder. You know, I don't think Nancy Allen heard that, you know. Oh, my gosh. But, um, in fact, he, he gave us all nicknames. I was sci-fi, which mine was the least uh, derogatory. Um <laughs> But um, at, at one point, he was wanting us to, he goes, oh, you ought to use your nicknames in your credits at the end, like Bart, Sci-Fi, Mixon, and you know, whatever. And I said, well, we'll do that, but only if you have Peter Powder My Butt Weller. <laughs> and um, so he's like, no, nah, no. Nah. You know, so. That's awesome. Here's something I've never thought of, RoboCop Swamp Ass. Like, is that a problem? <laughs> is that something? Oh, it was, <laughs> uh, it is. It was, uh, I probably shouldn't tell you this Bart one. Sci-Fi. But I, but I will. Uh, we would, um, between takes, we would take him out of a certain amount of the suit, and then there was, like we'd take the helmet off, and there was a uh, like a, a latex bald cap, and then the black chin piece came and rested over his ears. So um, he would want that away from his ears just so he could get some air and he could hear better. So he asked us to put like tissue or paper towels behind his ears to you know just to help keep it uh, away from him. So frequently I would take the couple of paper towels and fashion them into what resembled large rabbit ears and stick back there and then we would ball up another one and stick on his you know the base of his <laughs> spine for like a little cotton tail. And so he'd be walking around you know with these uh, you know being all you know serious and Mr. Uh, Method and uh, and he's got these bunny ears and a uh, little cotton tail. So you know we we had our fun. That's amazing. Um, Peter, Peter Weller Cottontail. That's right. So yeah, here comes Peter Weller. <laughs> Robocop Rabbit. <laughs> so, um, but anyway, so I, I helped dress him when he was in the, the first, you know, the, the robot suit. When we got to the third act phase, uh, Stefan Dupuis was the head makeup guy on set. He had just done the fly with Chris Wayless and uh, I, don't, I think he, I'm not sure where he knew Botine from, but Stefan and I co-applied the face. So he worked on the, he did the right side, I did the left side, and then he painted it. Once we got it based out in packs and he did the rubber grease, the tuttle colors on the face while I did the neck, the front and back of the neck and the back of the head, you know, put that stuff on. I hadn't done a lot of prosthetic application. I did a little bit with Mark on um, Elm Street 2 prior to that, but these were certainly the best pieces I'd ever worked with. I think it was the first time I had used a Prosade, which is what we glued it on with. And I remember Stefan did the initial test by himself, and then the second test, he did his side and I did my side. I'm working on Peter's side, and Rob Bottin's head was literally between the two of us. So like I could barely even reach Peter because Rob's head was there watching you know, everything <laughs> that I was doing. So yeah, that, that didn't make me nervous, you know. And even though I'd known Rob casually for a number of years, that was still, you know, it's, hey, it's Rob Boutine. And uh, I remember I had asked him, the, the, I don't know if uh, there's pictures online where you can see where the prosthetic ends, but it covered his brow, it came under his eye, and you would think it would have gone, say, to the corner of the nose and then, like, followed the nasolabial fold down to the chin. And I, I assume they didn't want to put it there because of the stress, but then you couldn't put the line too far back because... It, it had to taper his face and make it larger to look like it's stretched over this mechanism. So the the prosthetic line just goes down the middle of the cheek, which is like the worst place, you know. <laughs> <It's> not, <laughs> so I was just asking Rob, like I wasn't being like a smart ass or anything, but I was just curious, you know, why did you 
choose to put the line down the middle of his face. And he's like, Dick Smith could blend that edge. And I'm like, oh, I'm not saying I can't. I'm just <laughs> curious as to why, you know, you chose this place. But I mean, it, it's a great makeup. Uh, you know, it, it's just the illusion of what's going on there sure. is just amazing. It always sells. Every time I see that movie, that's always like one of the neatest parts is when he takes the, the helmet off and, and the flesh on the, on the robotic pieces. The back part of the head, how much of that is soft rubber and how much of that is actual, like, was there a lot of actual pieces glued to it and little plastic pieces? Or There was the, the front and back of the neck. There, mm-hmm. That was two pieces that kind of split up the, uh, like, the vein. So those were foam latex. And then what would essentially be the, the skull, that was a fiberglass piece okay. that just Velcroed on. And then all the little wire pieces were super glued. Wow. So it was, it was those three pieces. So again, like while Stefan was painting the front, I was, I was gluing all that on the, the back. <laughs> the one thing that I, and this I guess is kind of the, the magic of movies, when he, a lot, and I don't know that a lot of people notice this, but when he pulls the helmet off, suddenly all that black, not only is the black chin strap gone, but the black around the neck, yeah. you know, is gone. And when we were filming that, they're getting ready for him to take it off, and we were going to take a, a, I think we'd even taken a black chin piece and, like, cut it and whatever, and just, you know, they're offering it to Paul, like, do you want him, like, the helmet in one hand and this in the other, just like he's, and he's like, ah, I don't think anybody's going to notice that it's not there. And I'm like, well, how the hell are you not going <laughs> to notice that? Because it's just so radically different. But But in the... The flow of the scene, you don't. I mean, when no. you you know when you sit there and think about it, you're like, hey, wait a minute, where where'd that stuff go? But it's just such an emotional scene, and the whole thing with him, the way you, you see it from the back, then you see that distorted reflection, and mm-hmm. Nancy Allen's reaction, and all that stuff. I mean, you don't miss it, so it's just kind of like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess he knows what he's talking about. Yeah, I think it's like what you just said. Even if you notice it, you don't miss it. Yeah. like your brain might say that doesn't make sense, but you're like, I don't give crap. This movie's awesome. Like, yeah, I'm in this scene. I'm not worried about the chin strap. I mean, because. I think I was even kind of watching for it the first time I saw it, and I was just like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's, uh, and, and yeah, you're just so into it. So, I mean, there have been like some continuity type stuff that, you know, sometimes, but, but no, it's tricky knowing like uh, when not to worry about it. Sure, you know? right. And I mean, that was Paul's call. And I mean, again, at the time, I was like, well, I think he's crazy, but, you know, it, well, and he is crazy, but, uh, <laughs> but it, it, um, it, it certainly worked. With the melting Emil, again, I was applying. I applied the uh, left side, uh, Stefan applied the right side. Uh, he and uh, Gregor Punchatz, Greg kind of floated and jumped in and helped us where we needed on, on both sides. I think he and Greg did a lot of the pre-painting on it prior to us applying it because during the live action, when he uh, robo shoots him off his motorcycle at the gas station, he had some like uh, road rash on the side of his face, which those weren't in the prosthetic because the straight makeup people had added that to, to Paul, you know, during the shoot. So again, the Elvisite, the magic, magic plastic, I, I built up the, like the raspberries, you know, the road rash stuff on the, which happened to be on my side of his face. There, there's a second stage, which I don't think is that readily noticeable. The, the first stage when he does most of the, you know, help me and all that, mm-hmm. uh, the left side of the face is, there's a bit of the actor showing there. Then there's a, a more melted version when he comes staggering out and gets hit by the uh, the car. It's obliterated. Uh, yeah, which <laughs> that was a that was like a dummy that the physical effects guys put together and, and we mm-hmm. put the pieces on it and and then they packed it full of you know lunch or whatever. But I, I believe in that the couple of cuts leading up to that, uh, he's there's a uh, another appliance on the left side of his face that distorts that's heavily distorted. So there's a, a slight progression but it's not really that noticeable because it wasn't that radically different 
but so anyway, so then I, uh, it was a, whatever, it was a big chest piece. It was the, the head pieces, the arms. That was another thing that was kind of weird. The, the arms had been ran like full length from the fingers all the way to the shoulder. And then they had just been cut off the core and then shipped to us. So then when we glued them on him, we had to glue them together. And Stefan and Greg were doing their side. And I guess they got to that one before I'd got to mine. And so they're just gluing it together with super glue. And I think they accidentally, you know, stuck it to Paul a little bit. So I was kind of like, oh, I don't want to do that. So like I took like a piece of trash bag and cut like a long length of it and laid on his arm to protect him from where I was, you know, gluing it because I didn't, I didn't want him to get mad at me. <laughs> um, but anyway, and then, um, so yeah, then we, you know, I mixed up methicil and we, you know, we slimed him up. Oh man, that that's that's also a great moment in that movie, which is the, the melting guy. <laughs> that's one of the best dummies getting hit by a car that I've ever seen. Just the way it hits that whole body just blows up perfectly <laughs> and that head just comes flying oh, off. Oh. Yeah, it just vaporizes it, which I'm sure that was just a happy accident. It's like that. there's that weird shot in there during the chase where the hubcap comes off and goes right. you know, yep. by the camera. And that, I mean, that was just dumb luck, you mm-hmm. know? but it's yeah. like, oh, that's so cool. <laughs> when uh, Peter Weller gets killed, that was going to be shot in Pittsburgh, but we ran out of time, so then they shot it. I think it was down in Fullerton. They, we, they did a couple of weeks of, uh, of pickups uh, mm-hmm. here in town. And again, I was involved with that too. We had like blowing his hand off, which that was a cool uh, fiberglass hand that was cut into sections. And then air pressure would blow it off. Then there were blood tubes oh, in there that would, nice. but then you could clean it up and, and reset, reset it. Yeah. And uh, I remember I'd, like I was taking Dermawax and, you know, filling in the cracks. And, and again, there's a guys from Botine's crew there. And I'm like, okay, I got the wax you know, on there, somebody want to touch up the paint. They're like, you're the makeup guy. I'm like, oh, okay. So, you know, <laughs> so I do that. And then there's a couple, there's three shots of, Peter in the third act face that I applied by myself because Stefan wasn't available for the reshoots. And I had I, never painted it because I was always gluing the neck and stuff on. So like I called him and got all of his notes and and whatnot. I wish I could remember the guy's name, which is probably just as well that I can't. You know, because Botine's shop was like, oh, do you need any help? Because normally two of you guys were doing it. And I was like, well, I can I can get him in it. It's like the only place I could really use a hand is with the painting. It's like, I think I know what Stefan did, but if like maybe the guy who painted the dummy head of Peter when we shoot him in the head. Like mm-hmm. if like if he could be there to at least maybe jump in and help with some of the finishing, that would that would be helpful. So he comes out and I remember I'm in this room and it's it took forever to glue this thing on and I get it all glued on and based out and then I look over and I'm like, okay, this is where I could use some help. And he literally like hands up, oh no. And just walks out of the room. What? And it's just like, what the hell did you come here for then? (laughs) You know, it's, which I mean, I, then I finished it and we shot it and it was fine, but it's like, why are you here? Was it the same (laughs) amputee guy with one arm? No, no. (laughs) It was was a a very similar story. No, he had both hands because he was shaking them like, but it literally, he's just like, oh no. And he, you know, and I'm like, all right, well, thanks for dropping by, you know. And it's like, you just sat there and watched me glue this thing on. And then literally, Right when I got the makeup done, then they break for lunch. And the, <laughs> yeah, that's how it always yeah. happens. And, and of course, the caterer is all happy. He's like, today we got barbecue chicken for you, Peter. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> so I, like, I wouldn't let Peter eat anything till after we got the shots. There's only like three close-ups. But, yeah. Which at least I can like, okay, it's that one, it's that one. And in fact, there's a <laughs> that's the picture in my book of, of the makeup is the one day. Okay, I did it by myself that day. You made sure he didn't have barbecue yeah, sauce right. all over his lips? No barbecue sauce on his <laughs> But anyway, so yeah, I was just like, oh, thanks. That's, you know, now I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking like every time I had to do 
like a clutch close-up makeup or appliance or this or that. It's always like, yeah, we have ribs today or crab or something like that. It's like a good film producer would take the catering and what we were going to eat for lunch into account on heavy makeup days. Can you imagine that? It was like, yeah, no, today it's just smoothies through a straw. You're like, oh, awesome, great. We could do our, our close-up makeups for that. It's like, uh, no, we have uh, corn on the cob exclusively. Well, yeah, it, it does seem like, yeah, it's like, hey, it's linguine day. I mean, it's like whatever the, the oiliest, sloppiest. And, and if you're lucky, if they're like a professional actor, they're generally, they're pretty protective of the makeup like right. i've been doing paul bettany on the civil war and now the new avengers movies and he's very mindful you mm -hmm. know of the makeup i remember i was doing some background guy on ds9 or something one of the star trek shows and this guy's like you know you're taking this off of me for lunch because I, I like to eat and i'm like no 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 it's you know it's taking us two hours to get you in and of course we can't take another two hours <laughs> right. to you know He's like, this isn't going to get in the way of me eating, is it? Because I like to eat a lot, you know? And I'm like, well, no, no, you can eat. You just got to be careful, you know? It's like, you know, yeah. open your mouth. It's like little pieces. Don't get sloppy, you know, oily stuff. Okay. And I don't know if it was the same guy, but uh, I remember I was doing the after lunch touch-ups and like the lower lip has come up and you're like sure. pulling it open to re-glue it and it's just like full of rice and beans and you're just like holy Christ you know? just so, shoveling it in there yeah it's like well you know but yeah literally it's like what do you use your hands and just sure. well I know it was a prop but in my head I just see Peter Weller pulling out that giant Robocop spike and like hitting some ribs <laughs> ribs <laughs> oh there's a good uh, speaking of that the, the, that was a real cool hand you know the mechanism. I think it was a two. Was it a two-part thing? One would make the fingers go down. You know, go down, and then the spike. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it both happened at the same time or it, there was a slight delay. But um, I didn't know that much about mechanisms and stuff. But the more you used it, it would just get loose and get sloppy. So mm -hmm. after a while, it would just go off. You know, <laughs> um, a nineteen-inch spike. Oh just yeah. Going oh off. yeah. So so we're setting up the shot where Peter is trapped under all the, the rubble there yeah. and he's going to stab Clarence in the throat. And I'm just literally just holding the mechanism, the controller, just in the palm of my hand. I mean, I'm not touching anything other than just supporting it. And Verhoeven's like, hey, now let me see the hand because he's like figuring out where he wants it in the frame. And as he takes it from whomever, I guess the cables get pulled or something gets shifted but the thing engages and goes off, and this spike is like, like you know, like an inch from his eye. And then he's just like looking at me, you know, like I did it on purpose. And I'm like, you know, I'm like the other, I'm not, you know, I'm just holding it. Nope. <laughs> Wave your hands and run away. Yeah. But, um, but it, I mean, thank God it, it was as far away as it was because it, I mean, it was like coming right, coming right at him. But, um, so yeah, it's like, hey guys, you want to tighten this up a little? <laughs> That's <laughs> hysterical. <laughs> Uh, yeah, effects ready in five. <laughs> Christ. All right, guys, thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Bart Mixon, the second part where we talk all about his work on It, the miniseries from 1990, will be one week from now. We have a lot of great stories from that set and a few more movies. Don't forget to hit us up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at LaunchpadPod, and you can visit us on our website at LaunchpadPod.com. We love hearing from you guys. We really appreciate all the support. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to share with your friends and tune in one week from now. Hear the rest of our interview with Bart Mixon. 
Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.